Case 88 Podcast, Season 1, Episode 2, Part 3. Okay, Vaughn. How old were, were you when you first drank alcohol? I was 12 years old. I uh, filled up two pop-top bottles of that used to come with juice inside them. Filled one with gin and one with Captain Morgan rum. I went to a Christmas party due for our motorcycle club. And I sculled one in half an hour, and I sculled the other in half an hour. And what was the outcome? I don't remember. <laughs> okay. What was your first drug of choice? That would have been LSD. LSD was more of an enticement for me to go towards than anything else because of the hype I'd heard about it. The weed was just normal. Like, of course, I'd smoked weed before, but I had never chosen it as my drug of choice. Um, how old were you when you first had LSD? 14. It was the most intense experience I've ever had in my whole life, except for one moment that I had about four years ago. That was the, the breakthrough moment of my whole mental state and life. But this one here, I was so scared of taking this LSD that I cut it up into four pieces. And I took two pieces every hour. So over two hours, I'd eaten the whole piece. But in that period of time, I'd forgotten how much I'd had by the time I'd got to the fourth piece. And I'd always thought I'd lost more. And I was looking, for, and I'd gone in a loop looking for pieces of acid. And then I ended up sinking into the couch and becoming part of the, the, the room. I remember becoming part of the room and observing the the actual insides of the house from the outside and it was the most intense experience to ever have done on a school night <laughs> and, and having to go to school the next day not even telling my parents i'd just dropped acid for the first time that next the, the night before and i had kept it under wraps that whole time up until only a few years ago Awesome. So were you involved in a drug syndicate from Riviera that the cops claimed? Absolutely not. What they claimed was that I was sourcing chemicals or comp compounds from people that worked at Riviera and distributing it to people on the mountain. That was semi-correct. It was not a syndicate. It was a brotherhood of friends that knew that if they joined together, they would be able to get their stuff cheaper if they pooled their money together. 
that didn't mean that we were a syndicate. We were just scoring our shit together logically. And then that meant we had excess for less, which meant I could come up here, have a little bit of whatever, a little bit cheaper, and have a little bit extra on the side, and then make a little dosh on that. So technically, yes, technically, no, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And the whole reason why this had come up was because I was so green in the game that I didn't expect that doing ten, eight to ten drops to one or two to three houses in a night would send out red flags. I never understood the, this sort of mentality of how the game was played. And that's how they taught me how to play the game, was, was this incident. And what was the, uh, what was the outcome of the, the, um, the cops thinking that? Well, one of the guys, which was an easy target in the end, uh, was raided. And they knew that he was a underling, a person that was just a buyer, a person that was just a user, not a dealer, but knew that he had other things other than weed involved in the household. And the fact that other people in the household were also being supplied by moi. <laughs> but it was only a very small amount of blah, blah, and a very small amount of weed. Okay, okay. So I wasn't a syndicate person. There was nothing to do with that. It was just friends helping friends. Yep, yep. So is it true that you were sent to the Australian Institute of Sport? Absolutely. I was only, it was one of two out of each state picked to uh, go attend the, um, how long was it? Two weeks. A two-week training course by um, Stephen Gall. Um, I can't remember the other couple trainers. Kevin McGee. Kevin McGee, and another really high-end street street bike rider. And uh, in our class, we had Shannon Johnson, who ended up being Queensland. I can't remember Queensland or Australian superbike champion in the mid two thousands. And. Um, had gone on to Supermotard as well and done a few other things as well. But we all, in theory, were in the same classroom as the superbike riders, as the trials riders. So we were being taught theory the same as if we were riding a superbike, as if we were riding a trials bike. Then we would split ways. They'd go to the, 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 the closed course road circuit and we'd go off to the bush and ride trials. And they would go through so many technical pieces of, of terrain that by the time we finished this, this training session, you'd already gone from a C grade to a B grade nearly in a split second, the amount of information that they taught you. And the most beneficial information I got out of the Australian Institute of Sport was sport nutrition. It benefited me to such an extent that I could build muscle mass over such a short period of time without using any Dynabol or any other kind of steroid and only using meat, vegetables and, and, and whole, whole grain bread. You know, heaps of garlic, heaps of chilli, 
heaps of red meat and whole whole grain bread mixed with, you know, like your apples and your bananas, everything, man. Like, they taught me so much about sport nutrition that I could pretty much teach it myself now. Um, one of the biggest, most memorable experiences of the, the Institute of Sport was the plunge tank. The plunge tank was incredible. We would sit in a sauna for about half an hour, just chilling, talking, and then half an hour would click over, and then we'd hop out of the sauna into a, into a pool-like undercover area with a, a, a circular hole in the ground. And it was filled with ice water, like literally frozen water, just on the verge of freezing. And we had to jump out of the sauna and dive feet first into this tank, which was a plunge tank that would have been 15, 20 feet deep. Because you just dive into it and you just sink and it shocks the body to a point where you almost stop breathing. Your body is in such a shock mode. It, 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 I, they never explained to me what the reasoning behind the shock, shocking of the body was, but oh my God, it is the most intense feeling you'll ever have without doing drugs or riding hard on a bike. It was incredible. It scared the shit out of me because it stopped me breathing. It actually stopped me breathing. And that, that was, it really was a, a shock to the system. Now, you came third in uh, a championship event in observed trials. How many points were in the mix between first and third? First place, well, let's start with this. It was a two-day event. There were 12 sections on each day. Each day we did five laps of each 12 sections. So that's, what's that? A lot. <laughs> that's... That's, that's 60 sections a day or and around that. That's 120 sections in two days. And we only put our foot, I only put my foot down three times in 60 sections. Awesome. First and second were one and two feet in the whole of the two days. But unfortunately... Those two people were trophy hunters and were A-graders that had gone all the way down to classic trials and whipped out their classic motorcycles out of the shed covered in dust, never been ridden all year, up until the one day they have a Queensland title meet to go ride. And they went and hunted that trophy and they got it where I should have fucking damn right well have got that first place Queensland championship, 100%. Because three dabs in two days of 12 sections of five laps per day is a damn good effort. <clears throat> Absolutely. Okay, who was your best mate as a kid? And how did it turn out for both of you? We used to call him Dre. He was a good bloke. He was always loyal. He was a great friend to, to confide with. And... Um, we used to get drunk every single day of the week. Him and I were the biggest drinkers we ever met of our age. But it was partly because 
I would go off to his place and party on at his place on nights, on sleepover nights. And we would end up having Southern Comfort sometimes or maybe like a, like a OP rum at like 13 years old. And we ended up one time going through a whole bottle of Southern Comfort in one night, the two of us at like 13. And we had um, spaghetti bolognese. I will never forget it. <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> you know why I won't forget it? Because it all came back up. <laughs> and it was bad. It was bad as bad can be. Even to this day, I cannot smell or taste Southern Comfort without gagging. It is horrible. It's like when you have the same thing happened to me with OP rum, but I got over it because I love rum too much. <laughs> <laughs> you were the first person in your high school to be raided. Is that true? Yes, that is true. And how did this happen? This was because a piece of shit flipped on me and uh, wanted to get out of possession charge instead of fucking taking it like a man and going to court and going and doing drug, convert, drug diversion, you know? Like, we all know basically the normal basic laws that we're playing around with, and he didn't except the fact that he would, would get out of a possession charge just to, to clear his name. That week, he, he, I didn't know about this raid a week beforehand. It happened a week before they raided me, and he vanished. He went to Toowoomba that same week, and that's how I figured out who did what, was that the one guy that I was smoking up with all the time vanished and I only heard about where he went about a year later and a week after he, he got raided and he flipped, snitched, I got raided. I had eight, no, seven coppers at my front door banging on the door, like legit banging and mum had been called on the way to work saying there are six cop cars or five cop cars in your front lawn and driveway there's something going on at your place right now by a neighbor and i was actually in my um su quite suitable weed print boxes and uh t-shirt when i walked down from my uh, bedroom and i didn't even know that they were at my door so i've walked into the toilet taking the piss with them there demanding their way in and i walked back out washed my hands Looked up, go, what the fuck is that at the door? And fucking opened the door and there's fucking seven or eight coppers there. And I'm in my weed print fucking boxes going, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> there was fucking forensic people with cameras and fucking people with, oh my God, it was so full on. Well, that was my introduction to the police force at Tambourine Mountain. It was quite an ordeal. Okay, so the heat was on after that. What did you do from there? Well, amped it up. <laughs> I knew that they knew that I was just a weed dealer. That's what they knew. So why not go further and enjoy it while you can, as long as you got a cover. So I ended up going...
not deal, just help out? When living in Miami, how did you get into the pubs before you were of age? Well, I was very lucky enough to be friends with the Queensland Junior Champion um, kickboxer at the time. And he had a few connections of his own, as you do in that sort of world. And we uh, used to hire out a uh, motel just near uh, halfway to uh, Miami from Surfers, near a certain um, service, service station. And uh, we used to fit about eight guys in a, in a three, three, three bunk unit that wasn't even as big as a fucking... It was like a jail cell nearly with, with, with three bunks and we, we'd fit eight guys in there and fucking the whole fridge was top to bottom full of, full of rum and beer and it was just party central and then we'd turn 10 o'clock and we'd all walk our way out the Gold Coast Highway up to the clubs and uh, we'd be fucking blotto already so we didn't need to really buy much at the club. So it was a cheap night out. We always made sure that we got ourselves sorted before we left and made sure that our venture to the city or the town, as they would call it if you were from Brisbane, <laughs> you would never call Gold Coast the city if you were from Brisbane. And we would always go up there with a goal in mind and that would be to get rid of what's in your right pocket and eat what is in your left. <laughs> and old matey would let, just walk up to the, um, a certain club, which was everyone back in the day would know would be the Sugar Shack. Everyone would, back in the day would know that place. We used to walk up to that place and just get let in. I would be third in line or second in line. Old matey would be up front, someone would be in between, and I'd be the third and another couple up, up behind. And I would always be in my blue DC jumper with a little fucking pouch zipper at the top, and they would not even look twice at you. If you walked in there like you owned the place, as if you didn't have anything to worry about on you, as in you didn't look like you were underage, you didn't feel underage, you didn't have the personality of an underage kid, you didn't have have that mentality. You were already an 18-year-old at 17 or 16 and a half. Because that's when I first got into clubs, was 16 and a half. And uh, luckily, I was the last generation, illegally, to be able to smoke in the clubs. The last generation ever. 88. Look it up. Okay, I remember a moment when you were in a tough luck, tough luck situation and were sitting in the gutter waiting for someone with Tish and an old mate turned up out of the blue. How did this relationship turn out for you both? This blew me away because this guy, I only remembered the, after him explaining to himself who he was because the face didn't pick, I didn't pick the face. But I knew I knew him from somewhere because he he seemed to gravitate towards me instantaneously. Oi, oi, oi! I know you, oi, Vaughn. And I would be like looking up, like who the fuck is this? And it turns out to be a long lost buddy of mine from 
uh, work, uh, my father's workmates uh, area where we used to go meet up at do's and that for the, for the job. And uh, as, as like real youngsters, like real youngsters. How old were we? Yeah, 12. Yeah. And like this is bloody five or six, seven years later down the track. And he recognises me in the middle of the night on Chevron Island sitting in the gutter. And he was that stand up a guide to not just snub me and walk past, but to actually come down and say hi and see what was up and what I needed done. He was a good bloke. He was a bloke that I would put, take my own shirt off my back for him and, and take a bullet for that cunt because he was uh, was honest, true to, true, true to his mates and would never snitch, ever. How many home invasions have you been through? Two, uh, not including the, the one where my house got emptied. I wasn't there at the time. And what made you never pick up a gun? For the plain fact that guns are there to kill only. If you want to intimidate someone, you use a machete. Guns are only there for, for killing, and if you're not going to be ready to kill someone, don't pick up a gun. I heard you used to wear a DC hoodie in surface during, during Thursday to Sunday evenings. What was the reason you wore the DC hoodie? Well, that DC hoodie was well known, very well known. It was a hoodie that I wore on a Friday, Saturday night, every weekend, for the plain fact that they knew that that guy in that blue DC jumper had the best bills on the street. And that was a fact. Even though it was a red light to the cops, if they ever found that out back then, the boys knew that that guy had the goods. And it worked out fine. It worked out great. I never got caught. I never... None of that shit went down bad. It was always really well made and sorted out because the DC jumper was actually designed with this little zipper pocket above the, the hand pouch where you could stash in a 10 or 20 pack of Ekkies. And no one would see them or feel them because they were in the, the, the seam of the... Um, pouch on the hoodie so it looked like it was part of the scene but it was actually a miniature zip it was an amazing hoodie they don't make them like that no more I don't know why well I do know why but I don't like it <laughs> <laughs> but I wish they still made them like that that's a very cool idea so the first roundabout on Chevron Island was quite a notorious spot wasn't it what did it mean to you it meant party, party time. You, you come over the bridge. If you make it over the bridge and not get bashed or pushed over the bridge, because a lot of people were getting pushed over the Chevron Island Bridge and being bashed halfway across because it was just literally dead set and in the middle of the darkness halfway. You were, it was on. Like if someone was coming the other way and they were wanting you, it was on. There were many people thrown over that bridge. But once you got onto the other side, on the far left was Party House 1. On the far right, over the road, was, was Old Matey that got rid of Herb. And over to the left was Old Matey that did the rap and the other stuff. And it was great. It was just fucking awesome. It was like 
we had a green light because how the fuck could this go down for so long and the cops not shut it down? Like, it was like they didn't give a fuck. They just cared about surfers and Kabbalah and, and Orkadam. That's all they cared about was keeping those precincts safe, not Chevron. Chevron was party central. You could get away with anything there, like literally anything except for murder, but, you know, that shit don't go down very often around here. But, like, Chevron Island was party central back then. Still is, just not to the extent it is that was back then. When a big old mate blacked out in the beer garden at two o'clock in the morning, what did you do and how did you get away with it? Well, this bloke had sourced some stuff called tryptosy, which is a liquid liquid chem compound that um, has a LSD and an ecstasy effect to it when drank, when drunken, or dr whatever the fuck that word means. <laughs> 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 um, and uh, it used to come in canisters, film canisters, and in those canisters you'd get two shots worth of the hit, two hits of the tripsacy. And we would just get canister after canister after canister and know that if you're going to have a good night, you drink it all, or if you want just a cruisy night, you drink half. And this guy drank, it, drank both. And... He was about 130-something kilos and he had been drinking for days beforehand and he never touched the gear, so he never had a tolerance to hard, the hardcore style of that chemical world. He had always been a beer drinker, a rum drinker, but not on the gear, which really, really taints the system. It's a neurotoxic chemical unlike amphetamine, which is not neurotoxic. That's the biggest difference between gear and amphetamines is the neurotoxicity. But this guy, I knew instantly, because I was on one dose of tripsacy, in, and he had just taken his double dose just when I took mine, and I knew we were on the same level, and then it just elevated, he did. And I knew straight away what's, what's going to happen, and that is a pass out. He's going to pass out and vomit everywhere. So what we did, we got him out of the beer garden as quick as possible, got him a big bottle of water from, from the 7-Eleven down, down underneath, or whatever it was back then, I can't remember, night owl or something, I don't know what they were, and got him walking, got him circulating the blood, got him to sort of rehydrate and re-energise his own body naturally. And I carried him all the way from Orchid Ave all the way down to Chevron Island Bridge, down to the party house. And I wasn't even, I was, back then, I wasn't 94, 95 kilos. I was like an 80 kilo kid. So when I'm talking about lifting a 130 kilo guy that's six foot three, all the way from Walker down to Chevron Island, that was an effort and a half, especially when I'd taken nearly the same amount as he had. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any special moments that you can't erase from your memory? Number one would have to be being the only person I know in my whole life, except for the people I was with, that could smoke in the club and got in underage without an ID, without a fake ID. We did not use fake IDs. 
they weren't around. You did not have availability or fake IDs back then. I don't even know where you get them now. You, people just nick them and fucking do stupid shit with it. But like, I don't know what, where the fuck you'd get a fake ID from, but we walked just, we just walked in. It's like the bouncer didn't give a fuck or, the, or was running, a, you know, like a racket. And he would, if he caught the heat on him, then the heat would get him before them get us. That's the way I sort of thought it went, went down. Because I knew the shack was selling things through the club. And um, that's one of the only places we ever went in until I got to age. And then it was Cocktails and Dreams and um, uh, Berlin Bar, the bedroom when it came out. That was later down the track. And then I started stop. I didn't stop going clubbing from then on. It was just bullshit. People getting stabbed all the time. You know, like my mate Mason stabbed a dude in first year out of high school in surfers. Did did a lot of time for that. Poor cunt. So where was the biggest party house apart from your own? Well, it used to be located on Parnu Street in Chevron Island. This place was an open-door policy household. <laughs> as long as you had something to contribute to the party, you could come in and party. But there, this place was so derelict that there were roaches the size of fucking dessert spoon size spoons. Like, they were massive. The, the fucking sink was never, ever, ever, ever cleaned from dishes. I think there were dishes in there with mould on them. There was... Every room was trashed. There was no window... No, no um, lockable door. It was literally, like I said, an open door policy. There was a couch out the front that was in the weather that people just crashed out on whenever the rooms inside were too full. There were, it was just dingy and dark and creepy all at once. It was a massively bad place, but fun. And very, very, very interesting. <laughs> what made you and your best mate split up? Well, that happened. This was Dre. And um, he was always a very competitive kid against me. He, he, once I got karting, he went and got karting. You know, when I went and uh, got a car and started hooning, he got a car and started hooning. And uh, then one day he bought himself a 300ZX, $10,000 car. Had it for two months. He'd come down to visit me at my Miami apartment granny flat and it had just started raining just raining a little bit so it was you know just lifting the oil out of the, the asphalt and then we got in the car in the 300zx it wasn't the twin turbo luckily because it would have been a real shame if it was the twin turbo because that thing is a weapon oh my god that is a weapon of a car it still was a nice car this 300 though it had the target top roof and everything it was such a nice car. I really envied him. But he got into the car. He drove like a maniac 
when it was raining. He never knew the car. He didn't know the car very well. He didn't know where he was going very well. He didn't understand aquaplaning very well. He didn't understand that when rain hits the deck after a dry spell, it lifts oil. It, it was all against us. It was all against us. But as usual, I was blind drunk. I had this, the floor pan full of cans. And uh, lucky, obviously, I wasn't driving. But um, old matey, I told him, just chill out, mate. Just slow down, slow down. You, this is getting heavy rain, you know. We're gonna, you're doing 100 and something bloody kilometres an hour down Gooding Drive. You've got to slow down, mate. Even though it's a straight road, it's open, it's really nice surface, it's clean. Just slow down. And he didn't. We hit a power pole after aquaplaning in front of the Gooding Drive Merrimack Primary School turn off. And we hit a power pole 30 centimetres behind my head in the centre of the medium strip. Slid across the medium strip onto the oncoming lanes and stopped about 10 feet in front of a box truck. And the car was almost broken in two, 30 centimetres behind my head. When that happened to me, I was staring at this power pole, praying to God it was bolted down and not rooted. Because if it was rooted like a like a like a wooden uh, old school power pole, it would have been death for me. I would have been dead. But luckily, it broke the power pole off and bent the car in two and totaled it and old matey got charged five grand for the power pole and I, he lost a lifelong mate because what he did was the most disgusting part of it all even though i understand it because he does he did have a really nice car and he did only just get it but he didn't actually understand that he nearly killed me he i don't think even to this day he understands the, the severity of what he did to me, because I would never, like, I've been a bad drink driver in my life, but I've never, ever, ever injured anyone in my whole life drink driving. I've never put a person in a passenger seat drunk while I'm drunk. I've never done nothing silly like that. I'm a responsible drink driver. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there was some truth to the rumour that um, the syndicate thing that the cops raided you about, wasn't there? There was minor truth, and that was the truth that there was a group of people that were helping each other out, sourcing chemicals for a cheaper alternative. That's what is defined as a syndicate, technically. It's a group of people coming together and helping each other out in a illegal manner then dis dis distributing what they sourced. I was not distributing like they were. I was using what they were giving. And then I'd have a little extra over because we were sourcing together. That issue was what got me in the shit because old matey, he didn't have the balls enough to just shut up and just take it on the chin like a man and I didn't realize how weak a person he was otherwise I would never have dealt with him 
I don't deal with weak people anymore. This life of mine has taught me so many things and one of the things is what will be, will be. Another thing is such as life. Another thing is three men can keep a secret if two are dead. Do you believe the tr police treated you okay or were they too hard for someone so young? Well, I reckon they weren't hard on me at all. But what I do believe is they taught me too much. They showed me ways of tactics that they interrogate people with and how they do searches and how they operate. Just the basic operation principles of being a police officer was taught to me at 16 and a half. And that only made me more inclined to do dodgy shit, but better. Because I now knew ways that they were looking for that got me, as in high traffic areas. Do not have, do not shit where you live, as in do not operate out of your own home. Do not go to the same place more than once a day. Do not go and call and say names directly to certain people. Always have a, 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 a randomised coding of wording or just keep it very simple. And keep, don't say numbers, don't say things like that. Say it once and then you've got it sorted face to face and then you know what to say from then on. You know, you know that they're always watching. You know everyone is always being watched in this world. So you've got to act as if you are hot, even if you're not. And I'm a poet and I didn't even know it. But that's the way to get through this world, is to think that you're always being looked at. Because most of the time you are, and they're only waiting for you to be racking up charges big enough for them to nail you for good. Because petty-ass petty charges get them nowhere. They want something big and that's what they wait for. Just like what happens <clears throat> when people get pulled up randomly in the middle of the street with a whole pile of shit on them. They've been watching that person for so damn long that they know their roots, their ins, their outs, their peoples, their goes, their everyone, everything and they know when to put a D-car around the corner of their, their drop house and when to pull up that car. And they know exactly what's going on because of all the surveillance that goes on nowadays through the electronics, through phones, SIM cards, through telephone towers, through, through um, all the... Uh, pretty much Steve Jobs, fuck you cunt, and um, fucking uh, Bill Gates, fuck you cunt too. <laughs> you two have made it easier for third-party access to get your own private information. I think that's so wrong. I think if you're private in your own home, you should not be fucking ever recorded or, uh, or um, over-listened if you're in your own home. This is a thing about privacy that Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates have ruined by creating the smartphone. Before it used to be very simple. It was just a SIM card 
and a location tower. That was what it was. It was how far they were to each location or to each tower. And then if they needed to get anything else, they would have to get a warrant for audio microphone detection and tapping and all that crap. So nowadays you just consider yourself hot all, all day long and chill out with a bucket of ice. <laughs> that was the end of episode two, part three. Season one of K, K, K's 88 podcasts.